expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Data, I can understand how this could happen to the Onarans. What I can't understand is why anyone would voluntarily become dependent on a chemical. Voluntary addiction to drugs is a recurrent theme in many cultures. Wesley, no one wants to become dependent. That happens later. But it does happen. So why do people start? On my home planet, there was so much poverty and violence that for some, the only escape is through drugs. How can a chemical substance provide an escape? It doesn't. But it makes you think it does. You have to understand, drugs can make you feel good. They make you feel on top of the world. You're happy, sure of yourself, in control. But it's artificial. It doesn't feel artificial until the drug wears off. Then you pay the price. Before you know it, you're taking the drug not to feel good, but to keep from feeling bad. And that's the trap. All you care about is getting your next dosage. Nothing else matters. I guess I just don't understand. Wesley, I hope you never do. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 10, 2010. I'm Bob Met. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be is a number you can always call to reach us here live on Just Right on CHRW. And you can always email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Welcome to the show today, where we are talking about a number of subjects, perhaps with an emphasis on one or two themes. But near the end of the show, we'll be talking about Gaza. And we're not going to offer you any balance on the issue, just a few facts that we've dug up. (laughs) Something different, eh, Robert? Yes, indeed. And uh, we're also going to be talking about Harper's government um, doesn't seem to have any compassion for compassion. We'll look into what that's all about. An update on Mark Emery being in jail. You know, he's sitting in, a, in a, an isolation cell right now. Solitary confinement. Yeah, for the strangest of reasons. And, of course, the overall arching theme, I guess, that we'll be starting with today is America's global gr- crime spree, which I call prohibition. <laughs> and it's basically, to me, the United States going around on a crime spree around the world and messing up with everybody else's life. Interesting prohibition parallels and divergences through history. And I looked some up that I thought were very fascinating. Robert, this is from The Economist, the 2010 edition of The Pocket World, in figures where they, you know, they just have statistics, political, economical, social. And under crime and punishment, they have listed the top 25 imprisonment countries, the ones who imprison the most people. And, of course, uh, the United States is right at the top of the list with 2,310,984 prisoners, according to the most recent count, followed by China 
1.5 million, almost half. Then Russia, 887,000. Brazil, 440,000. India, 373,000. Mexico, 222, and then it goes down. You'll find United Kingdom and Japan almost parallel at 82,000, roughly a piece, down at number 18 and 19. Now, those are the absolute numbers. They don't really tell you a good yeah, story. Yes, do you have the uh, and they stats can, for the uh, percentage per percentage capita? Percentage per 100,000. Top 25, United States again, uh. 760 people per 100,000 are in a jail. Now get who the next nine countries are. With 631, Rwanda, 626, Russia, 531, Cuba, Virgin Islands, Belarus, Belize, Bahamas, Cayman Islands, and Georgia, for heaven's sakes. United States beats all of them. Most of the numbers in the U.S. and many of the high numbers in other countries are a direct consequence of drug prohibition, but that's just one part of the picture. With Canadian marijuana activist Mark Emery betrayed, I think, by his country's government, having been extradited to the U.S. in an effort to shut him up and keep him quiet, that's what they're doing. We're going to make sure you hear from him today, by the way. Due to his incredible ability to influence people, which is a real crime he's in jail for, eh, Robert? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, you know, to me, the, the evidence of America's moral bankruptcy and Canada's conservative governments eagerly embracing this moral bankruptcy is it, just horrible. I can't, I can't keep quiet about it. And uh, you have to say what should be obvious to any person of goodwill. If you are honest with yourself and you look at prohibition laws, you will discover that they are sheer cruelty. They're, they're fueled by irrationality, by altruism, monopolists. Oh, man, are they all over the place who want a control of some market. And influence of religious extremism, you'll see, too. And I define an extremist as one who thinks other people should be silenced or punished for disagreeing with them. You know, that's basically an extremist. But, um, you know, that's just one aspect of it. All of those things, by the way, are, are elements of fascism, which is an ideology of the extreme left, practiced most eagerly by so-called right-wingers. <laughs> so... Mark Emery has been placed in solitary confinement for up to a week as a consequence of continuing his criminal activity while he's in an American prison. The crime being, as always, opening his mouth and letting the public know what's going on. He's not selling seeds, drugs, alcohol, or cigarettes in the prison. He's just talking to his wife, Jody Emery, by phone from his prison, which is allowed. But because Jody posted his comments to their online magazine, or I'm not sure what form it actually took, but Mark was placed in solitary confinement. Now, what I want to know... And prevented from further communicating, wasn't it? Yes, for, for quite a while. Now, what I want to know, what did Mark reveal that was so damaging to the prison officials? According to a June 5, 2010 London Free Press article by Jeff Turner, Emery's, quote, topics run from the banalities of prison life. He explains how he crafted a light-blocking mask from a prison-issue tube sock to help him sleep in a brightly lit cell, to poignant stories of the sad lives of inmates. His June 1st entry boasts how he impressed inmates by showing them pictures of himself, um, posing with Tommy Chong, ZZ Top, and Sean Paul. Well, you know, that's certainly worth locking someone up in solitary confinement for, eh? <laughs> Can you imagine? America's prohibition mentality I don't think belongs here in Canada, and yet there has been a, U a history of U.S.-Canada conflict on the issue. And listen to this parallel, Robert. This is about alcohol called uh, from National Post, May 17, 2010, A Wash in Drink by Daniel Orkent, a recount of the puzzling history of prohibition and how Canadians like Sam Bronfman helped keep America anything but dry. So he was the Mark Emery of the time. Yes. You know, per pushing alcohol down, down to the States. It's like the Kennedy family in the States. Yes. 
all of these uh, great leaders made their <laughs> money on on drugs and 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 basically okay. vice you know uh, at a 1930 annual meeting of Distillers Corporation, Seagram's corporate head Sam Bronfman's main agenda item referred to, quote, certain legislation enacted by the late government, which was the Export Act of 1930. For nearly nine years, the American government had been pressuring the Canadians to cut off the southward movement of liquor. Sound familiar? During that period, whiskey exports to the U.S. were legal under Canadian law, but they ballooned from 8,000 gallons a year to more than one point. 1 million gallons of year um, per year of export to the US. Though that was a very small portion of the illegal liquor available in the states from the Canadian perspective, it was a big deal. The liquor export taxes accounted for some 20% of all Canadian tax <laughs> collections, can you imagine? <laughs> it's a lot. Both federal and provincial and were essentially being paid by American consumers. In 1929, Canada's alcohol export tax brought in twice as much as its income tax. With their own government, the prime beneficiary of the liquor industry, Canadians saw no reason to support the U.S. government's enforcement of a law that was stricter than Canada's own prohibition codes, almost all of which had, in any case, expired. If anything, the Canadian public had since grown even less sympathetic to U.S. prohibition. Were Canada to help the United States enforce its prohibition laws, a Toronto newspaper suggested, quote, it would show itself to be the simpleton in the family of nations, end quote. <laughs> a headline in the Ottawa Journal declared, quote, U.S. enforcement is like charity. It should begin at home. <laughs> One of the few demurring opinions, and this is supposed to be an opposite opinion, okay, came from Sir Henry Thornton, president of the government-owned CNR Railways, okay, said Thornton, I think our policy should be to assist the government of the United States in every way to make that country bone dry. But Thornton's interest lay in fostering the booming liquor tourism business, which brought more than 300 million American dollars to Canada in 1929, or nearly quadruple the 1920 figure. Quote, the drier the USA is, Thornton concluded, the better it'll be for us. <laughs> End quote. Isn't that just outrightly self-serving? The hypocrisy of Nothing has changed today. Then there's cigarettes, namely tobacco prohibition which takes the form of monopoly distributions uh, and which is, you know, all prohibition laws are about. They're just about, you know, nothing more than d monopolies. All other reasons are BS and it's so obvious that it boggles a rational mind how out of touch with reality all control freaks and prohibitionists actually are. Or they're evil, one or the other. They're a danger to society, as strange as that may seem. It's, they're the danger, not the retailers of contraband substances. Nobody's forcing any, me to do anything. I, you know, if I want to smoke a cigarette, that's my choice. Nobody else can force me to do it. Government should crack down on illegal cigarettes, writes Joe Belanger in, his, in the June 4th Free Press. It's going to take determination and negotiation among all levels of government, including our First Nations, where many of these tobacco products are being sold to non-native smokers. Now, if that's a concern... I call it a racist one. <laughs> it's okay to sell to, to natives if health is your concern, but not to non-natives. And yes, it's clear that Canada and the United States, he writes, must work together to stop the cross-border smuggling and manufacturing of these tobacco products. Cheap cigarettes like cheap oil and gas only leads to more consumption. This is not even true, but that's another issue. Because even outright prohibition doesn't curtail assumption of something that's in demand. Isn't that kind of obvious? Has prohibition outright stop pot sales? <laughs> Where does he get his common sense from, you know? More importantly, he writes, we all have a stake in the health of our youth. There you go, he pulled a kid card out again. That should be reason enough for the government to take action. So we should live under fascism because of the kids. You know, what's truly amazing is that Joe Belanger reaches this conclusion despite having written in the same editorial, quote, 
No question reducing tobacco taxes would be the most effective way of battling the sale of cheap, illegal tobacco being made and distributed by criminal organizations that also smuggle guns and drugs, two scourges delivering misery, violence, and death, end quote. So, no question, he says, yet look at the conclusion of the balance of his editorial, you know. Joe has a lot of support from the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. They're not against tobacco or smoking, mind you. They're against contraband. (laughs) In a May 25th full-page ad appearing in the National Post, this coalition argues, quote, Mr. Harper, this world... No, uh, this world on Tobacco Day. Let's. Oh, sorry. This. This is called. No, this is all in one quotation. World no Tobacco Day. I didn't even know that that mm-hmm. was a sentence. I had to put it together a couple of times. This world no Tobacco Day. Let's not forget the sixty thousand kids smoking contraband tobacco, or the criminal operations profiting from it, or the billions in taxpayer dollars lost to it because we all get burned by the illegal tobacco market. And look who's supporting this group. The Retail Council of Canada, Canadian Convenience Store Association, Crime Stoppers, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, the National Citizens Coalition, the Frontiers Duty Free Association, and even the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who all seem to have differing interests in this. Yes. And then there's Steve Tennant, aptly named Vice President of the Ontario Convenience Store Association, who's quoted by Joe Belanger in the June 4th Free Press, uh, quote, the problem with these cheaper cigarettes is that probably more young people are going to smoke, and that's not in anybody's interest in terms of health or taxes. Tobacco taxes help pay for our hospitals and for our schools. <laughs> I see you, you're disgusted, Robert. <laughs> like, consider the moral implications of that argument. The supposedly negative effects of contraband cigarettes would also occur if everyone just quit smoking. If everybody quit smoking, they'd have all the same negative effects that they're all worried about. All the cigarette profits made by variety stores and convenience stores would all be gone. In fact, all of these things would happen even in a free market with competitive prices. One store owner could argue that the other store owner is putting them out of business by having lower prices, etc., etc., etc. Pure, undisciplined self-interest turned into pure greed by a call for government to protect their illicit markets. You know, it's all market monopoly, protection from competition. Scott Stinson, May 28th, National Post, suggests terms like illegal and contraband tobacco, though, mask the problem for what it really is, a failure of governments to confront what is entirely a problem of law-breaking on the native reserves, end quote. Wrong again. The failure is a moral one. Prohibition and the price regulation by governments are evil at the root, let's face it, and can't have any other consequences but what we see. Which now brings us to Jamaica. You see the headlines lately, the pictures in the papers? The parallels to uh, the Merrick Emery thing is yeah. uh, can't be ignored. Um, well, gun battles leave 60 dead in Jamaica, reads the headline of the National Post, May 26th. Drug battle triggers state of emergency reads a May 25th headline. And this is reported out of New York, interestingly. Quote, uh, Jamaica has declared a state of emergency after gun battles were waged in the streets of the island's capital between police and gangsters defending an alleged drug baron. The wave of violence, followed by the government's announcement that it would extradite Christopher Dudas Coke, an alleged drug kingpin, to face drug and gun trafficking charges in New York. Mr. Coke, 41, is a godfather-like figure in the Kingston neighborhood of Tivoli Gardens, where his supporters blockaded streets in anticipation of police attempts to find and arrest him. Uh, Now, here's what's interesting, Robert. Many, it says, quote, many ordinary people respect Mr. Coke as a provider of jobs, money, schooling, and food in a struggling economy. 
His word is considered law in Tivoli Gardens. Children stay off the streets after 8 p.m., and the area is largely free of petty theft. <laughs> a law and order area, probably the only one in Jamaica, <laughs> run by a criminal. What does that tell you? Alleged criminals, right? Well, alleged <laughs> criminal. Well, I think that's pretty well known, but what, what's the difference between him and the governments that are supposedly controlling him? And, you know, Mr. Koch is also a prominent supporter of the ruling Jamaican Labor Party. Local criminal gangs have long been used and protected by the country's two main political parties to get out the vote at election time. Jamaican uh, PM Bruce Golding described the violence as, quote, a calculated assault on the authority of the state and cannot be tolerated. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good question. So even there, for him... It's not about drugs, it's, but it's about state authority over the individual. So I want to know is, like, uh, will the real bad guys please stand up, you know? The real bad guys are in New York or in Washington because well, they're, the they're the puppet masters. All of this violence started in Jamaica as soon as the U.S. insisted on extradition. Exactly. And this is going on all around the world, not just here in Canada. And, and, and you know, they, when I hear things like what they say Mark Emery's on our top ten list and then they say this guy's on their top ten list, if I compare the two, there's no comparison. Like, Mark Emery has never touched a gun. He didn't, didn't even catch him with drugs, just seeds, and he didn't even have them. They had to buy them off him and plant them themselves, right? And uh, never, never had any money because he gave it all away to his causes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So it's a sad situation. So I think that uh, prohibition, you know, itself is a crime, even if, it's, even if it is legal. Going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the situation with Mark Emery and what you'll be hearing on the other side of the break first thing is from a broadcast that was actually broadcast uh, just a week ago on CTS Christine Williams uh, with Paul McKeever and they were talking about basic issues of justice uh, moreover um, the whole issue of um, um, pardons and things like that but it tied into the greater issue of justice as you will hear on the other side so we'll take a quick break and we'll be back after this killed 30,000 people in 1833, we got the Public Health Act. When smog killed 2,500 people in 1952, we got the Clean Air Act. Mm. A commercial drug kills half a dozen people and we get it withdrawn from sale. Cigarettes kill 100,000 people a year. And what do we get? Four billion pounds a year. (laughs) 25,000 jobs in the tobacco industry, a flourishing cigarette export business helping our balance of trade, 250,000 jobs related to tobacco, News agents, packaging, transport. These figures are just guesses. No, they're governments to... They're facts. <laughs> the only little problem is that the tax on tobacco is a major source of revenue for the government. Right? Very true, but can we find something a bit stronger? Well, Frank, you know, I think the crucial argument is that we're living in a free country and we must be free to make our own decisions. After all... Government shouldn't be a nursemaid. We don't want the nanny state. Oh, that's very excellent. The only problem is that that is also the argument for legalizing the sale of marijuana, heroin, cocaine, arsenic, and jelly. <laughs> oh, maybe that's a good idea if we could put a big enough tax on them. anybody's out there is really happy about Carla Hamalka getting a pardon. No. And from what I've heard, she's gotten plastic surgery, she's not recognizable, 
We don't know what's going to happen from here on, but we do know that there are proposed changes. On the other hand, the John Howard Society comes out and says we're being too harsh. And in this particular article that we have, here you have a guy that he really hasn't done anything in the magnitude of Carla Hamalka or Graham James. He's committed, by all indications, some petty thefts, and he's trying to clean his life up. He's gotten his papers to practice as a nurse, and now he's hearing that rather than wait for three years, he's going to have to wait for some five years now. The problem I see with this, though, is that the differentiation between crimes, and obviously there's an outcry by, I would say, most ex-offenders because they're looking at cleaning up their lives, but there's also the victim aspect, and Take it away. I'm going to start with you on this one first, Paul. First well, of all, the revision of the pardon system. Well, I never get all that upset about, you know, changes that are based on degree. Three years, four years, five years. I, I'm more concerned with changes of kind. So if, for example, the kind is going to be that anybody who has abused a child will no longer be eligible for pardon at all, I'm all in favor. In fact... Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, so Carla Homolka, what on earth, do, why do we have a pardon system that would ever grant her pardon? How, could, how is that a pardonable offense? Ever. I, I just, it's, it's unfathomable. But there's another element to this, and, I, and it's actually got nothing to do with the pardon system itself. It's partly what you referred to. Why does it take this big, you know, event to bring people's attention to bad law? Well, that's the way. That's the way things work. And it, yes. you know, uh, Mark True. Emery, uh, Mark, Mark Emery, yeah, the the so-called Prince of Pot sold seeds intentionally so as to get charged to bring that issue to the fore. It has the internet. How the media works. Yeah, <laughs> and and the the blogosphere is full of people outraged that he's now being extradited to the United States for a at minimum mm -hmm. five-year sentence, where in Canada he would have got a two hundred dollar fine. You need that attention. But when a party says well, here's this big event, we now have an opportunity to win support among the law and order set or among the, our, our own members. I think that's where unwise law gets written. There's, there's this old saying that hard cases make for bad law, and I think that has a correlate in the political realm. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, where I believe we are now joined on the line by Paul McKeever Live. Are you there, Paul? Can't hear him. Can't hear him in my headset. Is he on there? I'm here. Oh, I hear you now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. I hear there's been some major developments with your movie, The Principle of Pot, which was released on YouTube just a few weeks ago. It has already had over 10,000 viewings of, a, of what's really a four-hour undertaking. Right. Bring us up to date a bit on that. Well, we released uh, part one in January. Uh, it, was a, it was a part that dealt with Mark Emery's life in, in uh, individual freedom activism when he hadn't yet touched on the cannabis uh, issue at all. Part two was released on April 21st, and it focuses on Emery's uh, cannabis uh, prohibition uh, war, if you want to, the war against uh, cannabis prohibition, since 1992, really. And uh, it's quickly, of course, gotten a lot of hits. But what was really odd with this one is that suddenly... Uh, those uh, supporters of Emory or people who are just against prohibition around the globe are starting to say, hey, we'd like to show this locally in theaters. And so it's actually going to get its first theatrical uh, showing this coming Saturday in Toronto at the Bloor Cinema at 1 o'clock on Saturday. 
Yeah, and if anybody wants to go there, it's 506 Bloor Street West at Bathurst, I understand. Uh, yeah, I think that's the, the intersection. Uh, yeah, do you have to buy tickets in advance, or is it something you can do at the door if there's anything still available? Well, that's the good question. Uh, yeah. Two days ago, the organizers, I didn't organize the viewing, but the person who's chiefly organizing it advised that 600 of the 840 tickets had already been sold. Wow. Uh, there's only one viewing, so people who want it ought to uh, get them now. I believe, I think it's hashmob.ca or hashmob.com or something like that that uh, you can buy online. But other than that, you'd have to go down to Toronto and either go to uh, a place called Vapor Central or you'd have to go to the Bloor Cinema to pick up uh, tickets. This is not just a, a movie showing, of course. This is actually a political event. Oh, yes. A- and the people that are coming down are from a broad spectrum, not, not necessarily marijuana smokers, but uh, we might have you know, patients and, and recreational smokers, but as, as well as uh, politicians. There may be local politicians there because, of course, we have the municipal race on in Toronto, and I'm, I'm advised some of those are going to be there. And, of course, Mark Emery's own spouse, uh, Jody Emery, is going to be there. She's going to be giving a speech. I'm going to be there giving answers to questions, and it's going to be a very important event because I, I see this as the beginning. Uh, you know, as leader of Freedom Party, I see this as the beginning of a real opportunity to start making a push politically as well to get organized. You get 840 people in a room, and you can, you can accomplish a lot. I agree, you know, and it, it's interesting, the name of the movie, The Principle of Pot, if you've watched it a couple of times, I know some people are almost watching it religiously because it's really the principle of politics, and you can learn a lot about political activity. i got to tell you, Paul, it's really strange to see it in the Bloor Cinema uh, listing there of calendar <laughs> events, uh, you know, just two columns over from one of my favorite shows, Serenity, right. <laughs> with Joss Whedon, and there's The Principle of Pot sitting right beside it in a theater. Has that ever happened before? YouTube um, piece jumping from YouTube to the theater? You'd think it'd normally be the other way around. I, this may be the first time. I can't say that with certainty, but I can't think of another time in which a movie... Well, first of all, it's not very common for a movie to premiere only on YouTube in the first place, so that was a bit of a, a one-off. But for it then to make the transition into theaters, I mean, I'm getting calls now from people in South, South uh, Africa who want to show it. Um, the, I've got one already set up for Halifax on July 3rd. And uh, they're, start, they're starting, I'll be discussing with Jody Emery this weekend about uh, Vancouver uh, viewing. So who knows, this might be uh, something that I'm not expecting it to be, you know, in the Academy Awards or anything like that or shown in well, a Paul, this, years, mo- th- this, as documentaries goes, go, this, this does deserve an Academy Award, honestly. I don't think I've ever seen a documentary more meticulously documented. I know, I know what you went through to do it. I know you went, you'd spend an, a week just looking up a date. <laughs> yeah. to make sure you had it right. That's true. And, and I, you and put it, all the information into the movie. That's true. It, it, and it was, you know, it was a 17-month effort. It was very draining. I can tell you that uh, for about a month after the release of Part 2, I've just been, uh, it's almost like a postpartum depression. I'm not depressed, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's equivalent, you know, in terms of the impact. You just feel a little bit numb. But, uh, well, you know, I've got to think that the DEA is not very happy about this movie being out and becoming popular and perhaps spreading across theaters in North America. Uh, that- I don't think they would be. You're right. And, and you know, but th- this goes beyond that, even. I think beyond the pot issue, it was funny because about a week after the movie Part 2 came out, a book was released by Marcy McDonald, who's a journalist in Canada, called The Armageddon Factor. And it was interesting. She touched on, not touched on, she repeated, really, uh, some of the same messages that I had put in Part 2. In Part 2 of the movie, I discuss uh, the rise of uh, the Conservative government in 2006 and how religion really uh, is, is um, really being the catalyst in that government and, co- and is at the root of uh, what I'm calling in that movie and what I think she called in her book 
uh, a culture war, a war not against, uh, you know, something that's unfamiliar, not against, for example, Islamic terrorism, but against the very things that make us Canadian. That, that uh, you'll recall in summer of 2003, we had finally gay people could marry one another. We had actually a whole summer where the, the courts had said there is no law against possession of small amounts of marijuana. Relax, have fun. Everyone did. No one was harmed. And this government is pushing back hard. Why are they doing it? And I, it's religious. Religious. Actually, I wouldn't mind speaking about that if you have a, a second. Well, well, we'll have more than a second. We've got to take a break right now, and we'll certainly get into what the Harper government's got in mind. We'll be hearing from Mark Emery first, actually, before we go to this break. Have you heard these at all yet, Paul? Uh, I think I'm familiar with some of the London broadcasts, so okay. that's what we're talking about, well, yes. This, what you're going to hear before the break and after are both CHRW originals brought to us um, by Alex uh, Jarowski, who recorded them just a little over a year ago when Mark was in London on his farewell tour. And this is Mark speaking at the Aeolian Hall in London, and we'll be back after this break. Your freedoms are very tenuously there, and they're only there because people fight for them. Single, lonely, solitary individuals. You can never count on your institutions to defend you. You certainly can't count on the media to defend you. And you certainly can't really count on big corporate interests. It all comes down to our freedom rests in the hands of people like me and you. So I started this revolution 20 years ago called Overgrow the Government, and I was going to sell lots of seeds and use all this money, and yes, indeed, it came to pass, and now I'm the number one drug trafficking kingpin in all of Canada, and the most I have ever done is pass one joint. So you have to understand, how could this happen? How could this hyperbole be seriously uttered by the, the, the Justice Department? The, the U.S. Attorney General, Alberto Gonzalez, actually had me on his list. In fact, when I got arrested by DEA and RCMP officers in July 2005. There was a press conference by the District Attorney of Washington and he, he had a map of the United States on the wall with all 50 states and there was a cannabis leaf on them and his announcement was Mark Emery had tentacles in all 50 of the United States. <laughs> tentacles? And there was an arrow coming down from Vancouver into those states, like I'm the Viet Cong on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, infiltrating it. And I thought, that's incredible. I felt incredibly flattered. All of a sudden, because what was I trying to do? Overgrow the government. And what was he saying? He has tentacles in all 50 states. And you know what that tentacle is? It's the truth, because it's the only thing that sticks. say everything I'm selling you is true. You can find these things out by Googling cannabis and cancer, cannabis and Alzheimer's. If you've got multiple sclerosis, every single person with MS swears by marijuana because it makes them see again. It returns the, returns the control of their limbs. If you've got AIDS wasting syndrome, you smoke cannabis, you're going to get your appetite. Hey, you know anybody with bulimia or anorexia? Send them to me. Send them to me. They won't have anorexia or bulimia by tomorrow. Because cannabis, cannabis motivates you to want to eat. And that's what happens when people, you know, I, I was recently, I was recently with this woman named Marilyn Holston. And it was very disturbing 
because she was getting kicked out of her apartment. She'd been there eight years, and she needed one gram of marijuana every day to cope with what she had to deal with. In fact, she had to deal with 60 different pills. You know, the old people, and they give you all those pills by these godlike doctors who are out to kill you. They give her 60 pills, and they're in those plastic bubble things. You've got to press them all, and it's got to time them so you know when to do it. There's so many you couldn't count on them to know when to take all their pills, so they have little times that take them. And she said, but I can't keep any of them down because they're opiates and morphine. Wait till I tell you what she's got and what situation she's in. She said, I've got to have cannabis just to keep all those pills down. And she said, besides, it makes me feel good considering my circumstances. And what are her circumstances? She was getting evicted from her apartment because of the smell of weed. She doesn't have any legs. She doesn't have any legs. She has diabetes, and she's had her legs amputated. And she's going blind. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to tell you, she's also hooked up to a dialysis machine every day for three hours. Every day for three hours. She's going blind. She's got no limbs. I'm a miracle she gets around. I can't believe such a thing. Can't even think about what that would be like myself. And they're trying to evict her because it's against the rules to have marijuana, even though she has a legal exemption from the government, which we had to pry out of them, and money like mine went to pay for us to go to court to get the government to accept medical marijuana as a legal federal exemption. Took years. Lots of money. We're still fighting it because the government fights it tooth and nail. Well, she's got her card, and they're still trying to throw her out. Still trying to throw out a woman with no legs, who is going blind, who's up to a dialysis, a big lead thing filtering out all her blood three hours a day. The people who are prohibitionists in this country are heartless, heartless people. They're haters. Why else would they have this program? Why else would thousands of us go to jail? Why else would two million Canadians have criminal records for marijuana? Wow. That's a mad Mark Emery there, isn't it? It's profound. Yeah. Welcome back. Hello, Paul. Hi. What do you think of that? Well, I, I'm, I'm stunned by it. It's uh, deeply emotional. You know, this comes on the heel. This hearing, this is, it just comes on the heels of a of a horrible uh, couple of weeks. We've had in Toronto um, uh, a compassion club, which is a place where medical marijuana users, and I'm talking serious patients, along the lines of what we just heard Mark describe, uh, were literally hit by police, thrown to the ground, handcuffed. Um, the place was raided. The the person who operates it's been charged with trafficking. And then followed by that, followed, that was followed in Quebec by another 25 or 35 being arrested last week. And then on Monday this week, they had, uh, the Harper government had Health Canada issue a statement effectively saying that compassion clubs are illegal and that they're going to help the police to shut them down. So they're basically saying not only do they have no compassion for the sick and the dying, but I think it goes beyond that. I think, as Mark said, it, it's actually to the point of hate. And, I, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, and if you'll give me a second, I think sure. I can explain it. Go for it. You know, the, the Harper government, uh, they've been pushing back last week. There was a, the, the Ducep, um Bloc Québécois, were saying, you know, you guys are getting influenced by religion. You're allowed, they had Opus Dei on Parliament Hill, invited by conservatives, who cancelled with conservatives. Opus Dei means God's work, and they're in the... the point of that organization is to say you should make sure that every aspect of your work life as well as your personal life is influenced by and consistent with the will of God. And as a lawmaker, that means you make sure your laws are consistent with the will of God. Duceppe was pointing to the separation of church and state, not to the issue that they, you know, all the conservative columnists have since gone, oh, what, you know, you're beating up on people who are Christian, you're not allowing them to be in politics. That's not the issue. The issue is religion has to be parked at the door, and when you're in the legislature, you make decisions solely upon the observable facts of reality, the ones you can see with your own eyes. But if you're, if you're religious, and you're saying, well, this Harper government, they're ignoring that. They're, they're making decisions on the basis of faith. You're saying, I'm going with Harper, and Harper's uh, making decisions that they like. What do they like? 
Well, they want a, a, a government that make that cracks down, that makes people obey. It's not that they want this law or that law to be obeyed. It's that they want all laws to be obeyed. And why do they do that? Why do they want obedience? Because in all religions, which are all founded on faith, not on observable, you know, you can't see God. You have to just believe him. But all of them say that there's this, not all of the, the ones in, Canada, in, in North America we're talking about, virtually all of them say that there's this entity that has set down rules and expects you to obey, and the highest good you can do as a religious person is obey. And that means, by implication, the most evil thing, the most vicious thing you can do is disobey. And if you look at the bile spewed on discussion forums, on, on, on uh, blogs uh, about Mark Emery, saying he's a trafficker, he's a, he's a horrible person, but they hope he rots in jail. This kind of anger, and these are social conservatives, so self-identified. I, I see those comments all the time, but you know they're not the only ones who are attacking the drug situation. You've got the the, the very left-wing um, prime minister of Jamaica saying the same thing. He says they're attacking their drug people because it's an, an assault on the authority of the state. End that, of story. That's right, and and so by virtue of their religion, they're becoming statists, and they're 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 saying that well, we want a government that lays down the law. We want laws that are consistent with what our God says are good. And since our God says, don't drink, don't inhale tobacco, don't inhale cannabis, we want a government that cracks down on these evildoers, that throws them in jail as though they're murderers. Murderers. In, in the United States, which is what's influencing the Harper government now, their policies, especially under Bush, selling seeds in the quantity that Mark Emery has sold them is punishable by capital punishment. The only reason he's not facing that right now. It's because he made a plea deal where basically they arranged in advance. He'd be, see, he'd be seeing five years in prison. But even that's an atrocity because in Canada, he'd only be facing a $200 fine or some community service. The Canadian government, the conservative government, knowing that, sent him down unconditionally. They didn't even seek any assurances that the death penalty wouldn't be uh, imposed. And we, we will find out in August to make sure. Hopefully the five-year deal will stick. But if it doesn't, if the judge rejects that, then Ace is wild. Anything goes. And this is a scary situation. This is really a culture war declared by conservatives. Social conservatives are the only kind of conservatives anymore. They're, they're deeply influenced by religion. And anybody who cares to have Canada remain a democracy, not a theocracy, needs to get active now. I wish that the NDP and the Liberals would do something about it. However, they're doing almost the same thing. They're saying, if it's popular, we're not going to touch it. Well, you know what? Freedom Party, anyway. And what used to be... Uh, the, the liberals under, you know, for example, Pierre Trudeau, believe that there are some things that are rights and that you can't, uh, you can't override those, that the government should not be your parent, but your protector. It doesn't make decisions for you, but protects your ability to make decisions, defends you from those who would use force to prevent you from making a profit, from smoking marijuana. Though that's what they're supposed to be defending us from, people who do that. They're not supposed to be the very people who throw us in prison for that. Now, I don't smoke marijuana. I'm a lawyer. I, I'm talking about a broader principle here. Oh, I know that. You haven't even met Mark Emery yet. I've never met him. <laughs> but the 840 people are going to be down at that Bloor Cinema on Saturday know full well what's at stake here. And I encourage anyone who's in the London area to make the drive down to Toronto. It'll be, it'll be just great to see you, to meet with you. If you care about your freedom, if you care about democracy, uh, that's the place to be, the Bloor Cinema at, at uh, noon on Saturday. Because this is, the, the stakes are getting higher. The Conservatives know it. 
and the bloodlust is, is showing no end, no abatement. Well, you know, you know, Paul, you're not alone in your assessment of the Conservatives' viewpoint on this. There's another famous Canadian south of the border named Conrad Black, who wrote an extraordinary piece that sounded very much like Mark Emery just sounded, mm-hmm. about the prison system in the U.S. and how the, the Conservative government up here is importing all the worst of America's prison system, including their drug laws. That's dated May 29th. And he concluded the essay with, quote, it is painful me, for me to write that with this garrote of a blueprint, the government I generally support is flirting with a moral and political catastrophe. Talking about just the futility of all the things that they've tried to curtail drugs in the States, and it only gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and, worse and never better, and they keep doing more and more and more. And what you know, I think there that? was an implied statement in that. I did read that article. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, he can't really say it. But, you know, when you start saying that obedience is our thing, that we're going we're gonna to crack down on the disobedient, and that God is, is going to influence our decisions, and what's wrong with that? Well, guess what you're just inviting? You're inviting Europe into Canada. You're inviting the same problem. It might be that the majority of religious people now are Christian in Canada, but that ne- won't necessarily remain. And, and so, you know, there's, there are other implications here. There are other sorts of theocrats. There are Islamic theocrats, for example. Sure. And if, if we set the precedent that religion is what dictates uh, our policies in Canada, that means all religion, any religion, and whoever has the greatest number of people as MPs, whichever religion has it, that will win the day. We've got to nip this thing in the bud because there are very few countries left in the whole globe that are like Canada, where we have at least some modicum left of respect for the separation of church and state. Freedom Party is going to be focusing on this issue from the next... The, I cannot see an end to when we're going to have to, because nobody else is. It's, it's really going to become, I think, in large part, at least under my leadership, uh, the focus of the party, the separation of church and state with respect to all policymaking. Well, you've got a challenge for you in this environment. Thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, guys. And good luck with the movie on Saturday. Right on. Take care. Bye now. One more time, we're going to be taking a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Gaza afterwards. But first, what you're going to hear before on this side of the break is, this was actually taped on A-Channel a year ago tomorrow, so it's just literally a year ago, and it's um, also when Mark Emery was in town talking to the folks at A-Channel and some of the things he said about his pending expectation of being in jail, and when we return, we'll continue. But I have to ask you this, as we look at this uh, fine of yours that yeah. you received so long ago... And I spent four days in jail for this one. This there's my all first of this jail activism, all of this activism, you've really enjoyed, I guess, antagonizing the established order, if I could put it that way, for so long. Did you ever, ever think in a million years that it would ever come to this? Oh, I knew it would come to this. In fact, when I went to jail, and we're talking 21 years ago now for this $500 fine, I refused to pay it. I spent four days in jail, and the community took a collection and paid for the fine after about four and a half days. You got $50 off your fine every day in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought all along I would end up in jail somewhere. And I thought all my great heroes ended up in jail, and there is no way to, to really resent or regret that. My regret is that I hadn't changed the laws in time to avoid the fate for me as well as so many, you know, millions of other. Mark Emery, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court has turned down Conrad Black's request to be released from a Florida prison. Well, you'll pay for that death and all the others you're responsible for. Well, I don't think I could pay for all of them, Major. There were so many. 
And you can only execute me once. It's my only regret. But I'll settle for knowing that Bajor will finally have the satisfaction of punishing the butcher of Galatep. Tell me, Major, did you figure this out all by yourself? Or did you have help from your Federation masters? I'll let you wonder about that. It'll keep you occupied while we're waiting for the provisional government to prepare your war crimes tribunal. War crimes? How could there be war crimes when there hasn't been a war? And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join us at 519-661-3600. And we're going to change gears a little bit now and uh, talk about something else that's been uh, highlighted in the news, and that is the Israeli response to the Gaza aid flotilla. Which, interestingly, is a continuation of the subject we had when we introduced Paul. Um, Paul Lambert, Lambert yeah, from two weeks, weeks ago. ago. And I remember when Paul was saying that he had promised himself never to get involved with this issue. <laughs> and I was sort of of the same mind. I don't want to get involved in this Hatfield-McCoy uh, just gobbledygook over there because it is so complex and it's been going on for so long. You just want to see, sort of stand back and just go shake your head and wonder mm. what's going on and what's going to happen. But... There are, there are issues out there in microcosm that, that you sometimes want to pick up and and see any sort of root, root cause, well, root philosophy about it. Yeah. And, and the, the aid flotilla, so-called, to Gaza, who sparked my attention for a couple of things. There was a couple of issues about it. Now, the first issue was the aid to Gaza itself. Now, while Israel controls Gaza airspace and maritime border, there is a continuing flow of humanitarian aid to Gaza across the Israeli border. There's no problem with aid to Gaza, really, right now, uh, at least through the Israel border. Um, Israel supplies Gaza with its electricity. I don't know if anybody out there knows that, but the electricity in Gaza comes from Israel. Thank you, uh, Israel. And has even set up, um, they've set up industrial shops in Gaza to provide employment. And it trades daily with Gaza. So as far as aid goes, there really is not a problem with aid. Now Egypt, on the other hand, has closed its border with Gaza and only allows aid convoys through under protest and not without incident. And I'm going to quote now from a a Reuters article that appeared January 6th of 2010, so not just uh, too long ago, about uh, five, six months ago. And this is from the Reuters article. Mm -hmm. Overnight, Egyptian security forces and members of the convoy, which is led by left-wing British politician George Galloway, threw stones at each other when tempers frayed over the route the trucks were to make. And in a further sign of tension surrounding the border, an Egyptian soldier was killed and four Palestinians were wounded in a gun battle in Rafah during a separate protest against anti-smuggling while Cairo was building on the Gaza border. The official Egyptian news agency, Mina, said 17 Egyptian soldiers were also injured and seven foreign activists were arrested. The shooting was the most serious incident between Egyptian forces and Hamas since Cairo began an underground steel barrier a month ago. The project could choke off the movement of weapons and goods through tunnels into the Gaza Strip. Under the compromise aid deal, 158 trucks will be allowed through Rafah in Gaza. The the Egyptian security source said, but 40 private cars in the convoy would have to stay in Egypt for a month for security procedures and then pass through Gaza via an Israeli checkpoint. So there, just to get out of that article mm-hmm. for a second, there you have the Egyptians saying, we're not going to do this, but the Israelis will let you through. You Interesting. Know? Yeah. Israelis are doing all the work, aren't they? They are indeed, and people don't realize it. defense, so to speak. Yeah, so back to the article here from Reuters, uh, January 6, 2010, they said, Egypt would close 
the Rafah border on Thursday after the convoy had passed through into Gaza. So in other words, yeah, sure, you've protested. Here's a bit of aid. Now we're going to shut the door again. Egypt's ruling National Democratic Party welcomed the delivery of humanitarian aid to Gaza, but rejected any attempt to violate Egypt's border controls. The deal followed a sometimes violent confrontation in the early hours in the Egyptian port city of Arish, some 40 kilometers from the border with Gaza. A Reuters correspondent saw security forces throwing stones at several hundred people traveling with the convoy, and police used water cannon to force them to end an occupation of the harbor. Around 40 convoy members suffered minor injuries and 15 police were hurt, witnesses said. Now, that's the Reuters article. When I have to ask the question, where was the worldwide outrage and condemnation of Egypt? Where was the call for the UN to have an internationally-led inquiry of Egypt's actions? Where was Turkey? Yeah. You know? another, another part of the uh, Gaza aid flotilla <laughs> was the issue of international waters. Now, Turkey had protested the boarding of the aid flotilla off Gaza in international waters and called it an act of piracy and terrorism. Now Mark Heller, or Heller rather, a principal research associate at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University, has pointed out that, quote, NATO's been stopping ships in the Mediterranean for a decade, looking for terrorists, and Turkey is a member of NATO. No one's told NATO it can't do this. So again, this is all the hypocrisy. The whole thing is all routine behavior that goes on day in, day out, 24-7, every day. Week. And one, they pick one to make an issue of. And it always has to be Israel. Yeah. Israel well, cannot do a thing to defend itself without people out there, the left, well, Robert, you, up in you, arms about it. You asked where were the protests, you know. It's been my experience, the same thing with the states when it's compared to other worse nations. And the thing is that people generally don't protest or criticize murderers because they don't expect them to behave good. <laughs> you that's, know? that's profound, Bob. I like that. If, if, if you've got the Soviet Union or, or, or Egypt and these countries that don't even recognize individual rights, why would you even talk to them about individual rights? There's no point. But a country like Israel is open to the idea and actually practices it to a great degree. So if it is seen to be violating those rights, then, it, then it's open to criticism because only a moral agent can be open to criticism in that way. And these other countries are just, you know, not even on that scale. That's very interesting, Bob. I think you've hit the nail on the head with that one, yeah. Now, another issue that mm-hmm. the Gaza flotilla thing about Turkey is um, Turkey seems to be want to try to be a peacemaker in this issue. And we should not let the fact that nine Turkish citizens were killed when Israeli soldiers boarded their ship on its way to a restricted maritime zone overshadow the fact that Turkey itself is embroiled in a civil war with Turkish Kurds, a war that has claimed 45,000 lives since 1984. Turkey is no shining example of peace, and its outrage over the actions of Israel on May 31st is pure drama, plain and simple drama. A deflection Crocodile from, tears. from what they're doing. Yeah. Oh, a deflection from the Turkish yeah. Kurd war. Sure. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, look over here. Look what these two people are doing and ignore the 200,000 over here. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the last issue about this Gaza thing that I want to bring up, and I really don't, like I said before, I don't want to get into the Gaza Middle East. Uh, no, uh, you're just doing process. a recap here to, to, yeah. to follow up. There's nothing we say today is going to stop anything over there. As a matter of fact, nothing anybody ever will say will stop what's going on over there and has been going on for thousands of years. And I went into a bit of history. 
just on that mm-hmm. point, how long this conflict's been going on. And in any conflict, it's usually the party that first uses violence that's rightfully thought of as being in the wrong. Who threw the first punch, basically? The Middle East conflict is so very complicated by the fact that it, is a, it has a bloody history going back thousands of years to the very beginning of civilization, in fact. I picked this piece, up, uh, piece of history up recently, and I'm quoting from that. Mm-hmm. Following the division of the Roman Empire in the third century before the Christian era, in other words, 2,300 years ago, Gaza remained under control of the Byzantine Empire. In 635 Christian era, Gaza was quickly besieged and captured by the Arab Rashidun Caliphate under General Emir ibn al-As, following the Battle of Ajnadain in central Palestine. Good luck with those names. Yes, I know. It's quite the mouthful. I was tripping over them there. The arrival of the Muslim Arabs brought drastic changes to Gaza. Its churches were transformed into mosques, including the present Great Mosque of Gaza, the oldest in the city. The population swiftly adopted Islam, and Arabic became the official language. So that's just going back, oh, 2,300 years and back to 635 Christian era, you know, 1700 years, and we're still seeing it today. The violence, the one religion usurping the the other one, and there's no end to it. It speaks to the theme that Paul is just talking about, why you have to separate church and state. Oh, yes. Um, even among the Arab nations, the ones that are most secular, the most peaceful, even despite their other problems, and the ones that are most integrated with the religion are the least peaceful. This just seems to be a natural consequence because, yeah. of course, religion is based on faith, not on object, objective reality. So if you've got somebody who disagrees with you, they're not going to agree with you based There's on anything. There's a big difference between having a religion and then making sure that everybody else follows your religion. Yes. That's the problem. And we only got a two minutes left or so, Bob, but I just wanted mm. to touch on one thing I just saw in today's paper. Which has nothing to do with this, right? Nothing to do okay. whatsoever with just Gaza. the last minute. Okay. Yeah. I just had to throw this in there because... No, it was uh, bothering you when you came in. <laughs> <laughs> it's from the Globe and Mail of today, actually. Um, or is it yesterday, the 10th? What's today? Uh, today's the 10th. Today's yes, the 10th. today's paper, sorry. <laughs> I know time flies. It has to do with Ben Kingsley, the guy who played Gandhi, if you remember, mm-hmm. in lots of other roles, too. Actually, quite the, quite the accomplished actor. However, um, quoting from the Globe and Mail... In a short film posted online at robinhoodtax.org, Mr. Kingsley plays a banker, mugged by five do-gooders who root through his pockets only to grab a single coin, break it in half, and promising to spend it well. Take their leave. As they heroically strut away, a voiceover explains, there's a new idea called the Robin Hood tax. We, must, we just take <laughs> 0.05% off every transaction bankers make. Small change to them, everything to the poor at home and abroad, and those fighting climate change. Are you with us? It'll raise billions and cost ordinary people nothing. Well, th- don't they see <laughs> that it all stems from the fact that first you got to do a mugging? I know. They actually correctly identify the fact that in order yeah, to take this money, they have to be violent. They have to put a gun to somebody's head. Oh, yeah. Don't so they it's, see? <laughs> it's amazing. I don't know it. I've, I've discovered myself that when it comes to morality, people, if, if, whenever you see, you know, surveys done on morality, the only thing people think about basically is religion and sex. Nothing else. Money, you can go steal, you can hit people, you can, you know. But and not only morality that, doesn't seem to extend beyond those activities. They say it'll raise billions and cost ordinary people nothing. Well, you know, I consider myself rather ordinary, okay? I have bank shares. I actually own part of Royal Bank and BMO. Well, that's what all those companies are made of, is ordinary people. I'm the shares. banker that these people are mugging. <laughs> 
Well, is, have you got it out of you now? Oh, yet, I'm, a, I'm finished with that. Okay. One. As a matter of fact, I think in the future we're going to do something about this Robin Hood tax because I think it's an issue that's uh, or even to, even the concept of the whole Robin Hood concept it deserves to be I think is back, yeah. grossly misunderstood. Well, that's it for today. We are out of time as we have to get out of here again, and I hope we'll, that you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, and be right here. Everything will be alright. Ah, Minister Humphrey. I was just wondering, did you have an interesting chat with Dr. Thorne? Yes, he proposed the elimination of smoking. (laughs) (laughs) By a campaign of mass hypnosis, perhaps. (laughs) By raising tobacco taxes sky high, simultaneously banning all advertising, including a point of sale. Don't you think his position is admirably moral? Moral, perhaps, but extremely silly. Uh, (laughs) No man in his right mind could possibly contemplate such a proposal. (laughs) I'm contemplating it. (laughs) Yes, of course, Prime Minister. Please, don't misunderstand me. It is quite right, of course, that you should contemplate all proposals that come from your government, but no sane man would ever support it. I'm supporting it. And quite right, too, (laughs) Prime Minister.